Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Scarlett Rivera is one of the world's foremost violinists, a performing and recording artist, a composer in her own right. Her recordings feature her original style and own compositions. But along the way, Scarlett Rivera has performed in front of audiences in the United States, Europe, and Asia. She has toured with a diverse number of acts, ranging from Bob Dylan, Tracy Chapman, the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and as a contributing recording artist, she has been featured on albums such as Bob Dylan's records Desire and Hard Rain, D.D. Bridgewater's album Just Family, Tracy Chapman's album Crossroads, and her own discography features styles that would include New Age, World, and Celtic music. It's a pleasure to present an interview with a world-renowned artist, Scarlett Rivera. It is an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's a, you got quite an unbelievable uh, legacy yourself of all the people you have interviewed. Well, that's very kind of you to say. The pleasure is all mine to speak to you, and I've been enjoying listening to your music in preparing for this. Oh, great. My solo music, you mean? Yes. Oh, good. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Is there a great, yeah. a greater purpose to your art than just the enjoyment of the listener? Definitely, for me. I mean, I uh, feel that I, um, I bring, you know, through my different styles, like the voice of the animals, that's kind of world music. You know, I bring attention to our loss of connection with the natural world and the animal kingdom, and, and this is my way of uh, bringing us back to remembering them and their voices. And so I start each composition with sound, the authentic, real sound of that animal. And then I, I wrote about how, you know, that was, I tried to capture the essence of that animal. And I, I actually worked at uh, and volunteered at exotic animal sanctuaries and helped take care of them. Very interesting. What was that like? Oh, it's um, incredible, nurturing, you know, soul-filling f- experience to work directly with uh, wild animals that have not lost, you know, their the purity of what they are and versus us, you know. We're so dependent on all kinds of artificial things. You know, there's nothing artificial about them. Or their lives, and so it's rare that we tap into that the purity. And so it was my way of going, you know, remembering myself <laughs> how important, you know, the power of what is the natural world is is is, is you know is you know profoundly. Um, a gift that is all around us, and yet we have disconnected from it. Yeah. So, you know, working with the animals, uh, uh, you know, you just don't have your phone on, you don't, uh, you know, uh, you're one-on-one with the essence of 
those animals. And it was a exciting way. I worked with falcons and hawks and and I walked African cat and walked uh, coyotes and, you know, helped get them to the, thing, you know, uh, veterinary office if need be. It was just, a, it's, oh, and I fed baby animals. That was incredible. Hmm. Baby, uh, like a baby hummingbird or a baby stork. <laughs> it was incredible, <laughs> wonderful experience. Very interesting. So I brought all that into that music, you know. And have you always been a lover of animals? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have. Also, you know, my Celtic music, I, even though I'm half Celtic, I'm half Irish, I really, it took me half a lifetime before I got back into, like, really connecting with my own Celtic roots. And so once I did, it was a wonderful thing. And and I got put in touch with uh, the... I, the tremendous Irish piper that's featured in a movie, Braveheart and Titanic. And he and I did lots of recording together, and uh, we performed in uh, in Japan together. And um, with, But it was my original Celtic music that I would say I would describe it as Inya without lyrics. <laughs> On the note of your Celtic background, tell us a little bit about your, your ancestry. Uh, half Irish from Cork. Grandparents were from Cork. And other grandparents were from uh, Sicily. And tell us about your parents. Uh, they were, you know, they really were, you know, visionary in that they gave me and my other siblings the chance to learn music properly, and we... Fortunately, the school system, which was just public school, had a um, real band and with a conductor and a real orchestra with a real conductor. And so, you know, our, um, you know, their local taxes or whatever paid to have that in the school system, you know. And if that didn't exist, they probably wouldn't have become an artist. So was it in school that you started to realize? It was realize? in school. Yeah, yeah. But I also, they, then they gave me private lessons as well. But there, there was a real orchestra to, you know, if, if you just had private lessons, I don't think it would have translated as much into the, the knowing of what, how big and huge the musical world is, you know, as a child to learn Mozart and Tchaikovsky and, uh, you know, to know about... Handel and Beethoven is tremendous thing. It expands your cultural not awareness, and it's also good mathematically for your kids' brain to learn music because <laughs> it's all about counting. And when did you start to realize, or when did your parents start to realize? Wow, she's really a musical soul. Um. Well, I had first chair the whole time from grade school through uh, junior high to high school. I held first chair the whole time. So I guess they thought that was a pretty good thing. And then I got a music scholarship to SIU University. SIU? 
at Southern Illinois University. Ah, so and that's where you went? Yeah, I went there for a short time. But my parents didn't particularly want me to become a professional musician. <laughs> this was just to be learn a little culture and then, you know, hopefully stay home and marry somebody and uh, never go anywhere. So I definitely surprised them with <laughs> but that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Who would you say your biggest influences as an artist are? Uh, well, um, influence. Um, it depends on what genre, you know, I'm listening to. For Celtic, it would have been India and Lorena McKenna, but I don't copy them in any way, shape, or form. Just, you know, they take me to a wonderful place when I listen to them. And that ends up, inspiration ends up eventually in, in something, a new composition. And of course, I've learned a lot of traditional Irish jigs and reels, and I have a very big Irish, Celtic traditional uh, repertoire of fiddle songs and fiddle tunes that I can play, including pirate songs and sea shanties. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> when you were first starting to think of yourself as, well, I'm going to be a performing artist, I'm going to be a someone that people go see or buy an album from, was it performing any music or was it was your main goal to eventually compose your own songs? The original songs just evolved later, but at first it was just playing, integrating the violin into contemporary music. So I was one of the first people on the scene to actually break crossover from classical music into rock and pop and uh, all the other styles. Um, and, you know, from me being one of the first, many other people have later, you know, hired violinists or cellists or some other strings to be on their albums. There's a decision that a lot of people make in life where they decide whether they're going to, I heard you say in an interview that you did, they live a life of adventure. They go on the adventure or they decide to live a more domestic life. Now, <laughs> was there was there any kind of doubt in your mind when you started to go on in this direction of being a lifelong artist that this was the right path? Uh, no, there wasn't. It was like <laughs> I had a one-way, I bought a one-way ticket to New York City without knowing, having friends, I had no money and I had no friends and I still bought a one-way ticket there. You know, it's just, you know, whatever I saved for in the spring or summer jobs, that was quite a brave and crazy thing to do. But that is how I thought I had a lot enough confidence to do that. And then I just rented a place and did some, you know, part-time things on the in the daytime and then sat in with all kinds of people at night in New York City and, and it led to many 
that led to where, where I am today. Was this an ex- an extremely exciting time? Uh, it was, and it was ex- exciting, and it was also scary, you know, because I didn't know... Uh, no guarantee of anything. And so it was just on a wing and a prayer that I was deciding that I was going to do what I was going to do. And, you know, maybe it would work out, maybe it wouldn't, but evidently it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I heard also where you had said that you were always shy. But I was. The strange thing about it is I was extremely remote and withdrawn but not in mus- not musically, but it personally I was. So I might not, I'd play and be present on stage, but I, once I walked off stage, I was not very uh, engaging with anybody. Hmm. But where it counted was on the stage. And I'm hoping you can tell us about when you first encountered Bob Dylan do you think that there was something almost ethereal or something almost spiritual about the way that you all connected? I do. I do. I believe it was fateful that, and kind of destiny, the hand of destiny that put me in his path. And um, the thing about him is he's extremely discerning and picky and is does not take to people very easily and or trust or embrace or bring them in to his inner world. And so if any if he didn't like slightest thing about me that day, I would just have disappeared in a in an instant. We really clicked and I it actually was a huge advantage that I was withdrawn and that I was not, uh, you know, pushy with him or, you know, I was not uh, clutching or, you know, trying to grasp something out of him. You know, he liked that. That, that. that was part of the destiny, too, that we were just at the same, had the same vibration, and it, it was, we really did connect with each other. Was he at all intimidating to be around? Uh, no, I just uh, I had a feeling, I had a natural feeling about almost like I knew him before. So that's why it just it just clicked. You know, I didn't I didn't approach him with oh my god. You know, I mean, he wouldn't have liked that if I did that or any of that or or fawning over him. I didn't do any of that. And that we just um I just connected with him where he was and where I was at the time. And I was very present and but not I didn't appear to be overwhelmed by him. What would you say you learned from the experience of working with Bob Dylan? Well, I learned many things, but um, I learned, well, I mean, it was a great gift of how he opened that space for me. And um, 
I would say I just had uh, I followed my intuition of you know how to work with him and and uh, that intuition you know I guess paid off because I did things correctly that worked with him and um, uh, so he gave me a lot of leeway because of that. And that leeway you can hear on the record. Hmm. You've worked with a, quite a number of artists through the years. And to let all the listeners know how we pretty much got connected, it was through Eric Anderson, who, yes. who was a guest on this show. And so I'm curious, what type of people do you find yourself vibing with that you get along with the best when you're making music? I get along best with the poets, you know. I see that that, that that's the trend is the poets like me and I like the poets, <laughs> the poetic uh, souls, which Eric certainly is one of the great ones, you know. Uh, so his music was an absolute, you know, pleasure to, to compliment and to work with and, you know, really admire his uh the depth of his lyrics and so that i am drawn to the great you know poets lyrically but i also love working with really super great instrumentalists as long as they're not rigid they have to have that free flow like more they have to give you more liberty you're saying yeah um, yeah now, speaking of poetic artists, Joni Mitchell, I would definitely describe as a, a poetic songwriter. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She is, she is a genius. She's one of the greats of this century who also broke all kinds of, you know, uh, stereotypes. She, she can't be stereotyped as, you know, the folk singer or any of that because she broke, continued to reinvent herself and, and step into new territory and, and constantly evolve, which I really admire how she has done that. And millions of other people do. I'm hoping you can tell us about this musical celebration that's going to be done for Joni Mitchell's birthday that you're a part of. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I'm so happy that um, this is being organized. It's for her. It's like a birthday present to her. That great, so many great artists that were chosen to be part of this will pick one of their favorite um, Joni Mitchell songs from all kinds of different albums and eras, and uh, from the jazz to the original early days. And and this is it's ends and it's going to end up being a two day event at a really big hall in Los Angeles, Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which I've never played at. And so I, I actually don't know 100% who I'm going to accompany. It's still being decided right now as we speak. But I'll let you know. <laughs> You'll know soon. <laughs> Wonderful. Very, very exciting. Do you know if there will be possibly a recording made of it? Um, I do know they're working on getting the rights to film it. 
So I assume that it will be, you know, record slash film, either or or both. They're definitely working on that. You know, you were just mentioning a moment ago venues, and you've played at some very, very iconic places uh, and some interesting Mm -hmm. places as well. Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, Mm -hmm. and then I read the Carnival at Venice. Carnival of Venice in Italy, yes. Wow. What would you say has been the most memorable place that you performed? Well, a memorable place in the negative would be East Germany behind the Iron Curtain, behind the wall, before it came down. And I was one of the only Americans that was ever in this uh, German band, all German band, with a a German star at the time who was kind of like the Bruce Springsteen of Germany. His name is Peter Maffei, and he got permission somehow from the East German side to go through the wall with our band, with his band. And we played deep into beyond East Berlin into Rostock. And we passed all the machine gun towers and, you know, just saw what, what fascism looks like when you're actually uh, in a society that it's taken over 100%. And it was a chilling experience. And I felt uh, really sad for the people behind the wall. And what would you say on the the more positive side? Positive side, um, I would say Madison Square Garden was a great show that we did uh, with Bob Dylan. And uh, I've never played there again. Madison Square Garden was the fundraiser to raise money for uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter's legal funds. And uh, Muhammad Ali came to our show. (laughs) And so we actually did contribute to Hurricane Carter getting out of prison. Very interesting. Now, we mentioned at the top of the interview how many different places that you have performed around the world. And something about instrumental music that's interesting is when you create instrumental music, there's even more of a, you know, it's border-free. People, they don't have to understand the language in a lyric necessarily. Mm-hmm. So when you go around the world and you meet people who are fans of your music, do you notice any commonality amongst the people that you meet? Well, you know what? Now that you mentioned it, that, uh, you know, the kind of, lack of barriers that instrumental music it opens up it it actually lends itself to like a world group in front of you like when I played Japan for example there were teenagers in the audience you know smoking cigarettes behind the stage (laughs) and then there were almost elderly women in full kimonos at my show Hmm. So I appealed to the same from those young girls smoking cigarettes to the ladies in their kimonos. And that's a rare thing to be able to cross both of those, you know, 
um, boundaries, and you know that I appealed to to both of them, and also just as the bands, you know, you could have someone on percussion from Africa, somebody from you know South America, so, like a a world UN is in each band, and that appeals to the audience of all kinds of, you know, ages, races, you know, it breaks down all of that. You know, we, it's, it's very open and inviting to people of all cultures, ages, you know, and I, I love instrumental music for that. What do you hope somebody gets out of your music when they listen to it? Um, well, I, I do feel that it definitely touches people and some things of mine have stayed with people for many years, which is surprising to me that, um, you know, sometimes I've gotten an email saying, do you know how I can find, you know, something off of one of my very first albums? I'm like, wow, they re- it called Ring Around the Moon, which was kind of a very ethereal, um, like a fairy tale that I put on the last cut. And I said, wow, I can't believe somebody has remembered that song from that long ago. And that actually meant something to them. So once um, you've put the music out, you have no idea where it's going to, actually take root in people, but I know it does. What does that feel like to know that something is pretty much ingrained in someone's soul like that? Well, it feels like uh, that you've had a successful life, <laughs> that this is, this is the success of, it's not in record sales and, you know, being number one on the chart. This is the soul chart <laughs> that you've succeeded in uh, helping or touching somebody or numbers of people in ways that you have no no idea but you know feels very good no doubt we have people listening in who are fans of your music who are familiar with your work but then there's other people i'm sure who they're just getting exposed to your music for anyone who is joining us anyone who's listening in what would you say to them um well i'm glad that music brings people together and there's never been a more important time on a global level for people to you to come together and um, to cross barriers, to dis- to disregard, you know, boundaries, barriers, you know, and and to think of the world and through music on a on a global level, you know, that we're all on the same planet, and to make it a more beautiful, better place for all living beings on the planet. Anybody out there, if they want more information, they can visit angelusmusic.com slash Scarlet Rivera. And it's A-N-G-E-L-L-E-S music.com. And there's also a Facebook page that they can they can visit. 
my last question, who is Scarlett Rivera? How would you define yourself? Someone who is always growing, evolving, and committed to the earth and all of the beautiful creatures on the earth through my music and all of humanity as well, trying to make it a better place for all. And since music is my kind of vehicle, that's how I, I want to do that. Well, I feel very fortunate to have been able to talk to you. Well, likewise. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you very much. I hope we maybe have a chance to talk again sometime. Have a wonderful All right. day. All right. And maybe one of these days you can play one of the songs on the air for, for the people that you choose that you, you want them to listen to from oh. one of my solo things. Oh, absolutely. I will. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs>